Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Not long ago, I went to the Maritime Museum in San Diego, California, which if you like boats and ships and maritime history, it was worth a stop. Uh, it's also right down the road from the USS Midway Museum. So if you would like some military history and some maritime history all together, like you can just spend a whole day out there. Um, don't do what I did and lose your camera, though. If anyone saw my camera in San Diego, I'd let me know. Yeah, I think I have the last known photo from that camera because you texted it to me from the museum. Oh, I took that from my iPhone. Fortunately, I didn't lose my phone. I only lost my point-and-shoot camera. Anyway... The actual point is, uh, among the many seafaring vessels at the Maritime Museum is this Soviet Foxtrot-class submarine, which uh, is home to an exhibit about a really harrowing incident I had never heard about before. It was one of the surprisingly many moments in history when the world came perilously close to a full-scale nuclear war. Uh, And I did not actually know there were that many... That surprisingly many incidents until I started looking into it for this episode today. So today we are just going to look at three of them, including the one I learned about in San Diego, which inspired today's show. The incident aboard Soviet submarine B-59 is tangled up with the Cuban Missile Crisis and the nuclear arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. With the help of its allies, the United States developed the first nuclear weapons through the Manhattan Project. Among the weapons the Manhattan Project produced were the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan in 1945. Not long after World War II, the Soviet Union successfully detonated its own nuclear bomb, and soon the United States and the Soviet Union were locked in a Cold War and a nuclear arms race. Both nations were simultaneously building more nuclear weapons and developing more powerful weapons that were able to travel greater distances and deliver bigger payloads. The Cuban Missile Crisis grew out of this Cold War and arms race. In July of 1962, the Soviet Union reached an agreement with Cuba to install several missiles there. The negotiation and the transportation of missiles to Cuba were conducted in secret, but the U.S. learned about it through aerial surveillance photography on October 14, 1962. Those photographs were delivered to the White House the next day. At this point, the United States nuclear arsenal was far, far bigger and more powerful than the Soviet Union's. And the United States also already had missiles stationed in Turkey in easy reach of Soviet territory. But with the placement of missiles in Cuba for the first time, the Soviet Union also had missiles in easy reach of American territory. Even though the Soviets insisted that the missiles were only in Cuba as a defensive measure, this was a move that was both intended and interpreted as a threat. For a few days, news of the missile installation was also kept secret from the general public. But on October 22nd, President John F. Kennedy gave a televised address, giving Americans a detailed description of the missile sites being built. He called Soviets' placement of missiles in Cuba a, quote, clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat. And he announced a naval quarantine around Cuba to prohibit the delivery of any further materials or weapons. This quarantine really goes in air quotes. It was a blockade. But calling it a blockade would have presumed a state of war. So they chose the word quarantine to be nicer about it. 
Kennedy also wrote to Nikita Khrushchev, the first secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, basically the leader of the Soviet Union, to say that the United States would not tolerate the presence of Soviet missiles in Cuba. He also spelled out that any nuclear attack on any nation launched from Cuba would be viewed as a Soviet attack on the United States, and the United States would retaliate in kind. Khrushchev, for his part, insisted that these missiles were just being placed there to defend Cuba from attack. For the whole of the 13 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States and the Soviet Union were in an incredibly tense stalemate, with the U.S. demanding that the Soviet Union remove the missiles and the Soviet Union both refusing and continuing construction on the missile sites. And on October 27th, things were particularly bad. The U.S. had been at DEFCON 2 with the armed forces ready to launch an all-out nuclear war for three days. And then that day, an American U-2 spy plane was shot down by a Russian missile over Cuba, and its pilot, Major Rudolf Anderson, was killed. So the prevailing description of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that for this entire time, the world was on the brink of a nuclear war. But there was also this other element of it going on that wasn't known about until much later. There were four Soviet submarines, each of them with a nuclear-tipped torpedo among their armaments, and they were en route to Cuba as part of a submarine force that was going to be stationed there. These were all Foxtrot-class submarines, and they were powered by a combination of diesel and battery power. While they were submerged, they ran on their batteries, and then they had to return to the surface periodically to get recharged. Soviet navigators were exceptionally skilled at using the varying temperatures of the ocean depths to avoid detection on radar. But without periodically recharging the batteries on the surface, where they were much more easy to spot, they could not stay underwater. Their last instruction from Moscow had been to hold position not far from Cuba. But they'd since lost contact. And the vessels themselves, built for use in colder waters, were not tolerating the warmer ocean near Cuba very well. The air conditioning failed, and the temperatures in the subs started to rise well above 100 degrees. To make matters worse, they were running out of food and water. And since they'd lost contact with Moscow, their only way of finding out what was happening and whether the United States and the Soviet Union had gone to war was to listen to a civilian radio broadcast from Miami. On the 27th of October, a spotter plane caught a glimpse of one of the submarines near the surface of the ocean. And late that afternoon, American reconnaissance had detected the presence of at least three Soviet submarines near Cuba. Ships that were in the area as part of the quarantine started to try to get the submarines to the surface by dropping signaling charges into the ocean. There's a little bit of discrepancy in accounts among the people who were actually there. Some of them say that dropping four or five loud but non-damaging charges was an official signal uh, to surface. But others say that they were intentionally dropping these charges to harass the, the submerged submarines in the hope of basically forcing them up to the surface. Aboard the B-59, though, the Soviets had no idea what was going on. They had not gotten new orders from Moscow in more than a week, and they were overheated, dehydrated, and exhausted. As battery power failed, life support systems did as well, and the air aboard had less and less oxygen. They didn't know if the explosions that they were hearing around them could damage or destroy their craft. 
And their only source of information was these American news reports on the civilian radio, which were reporting the extreme tensions and fears about the Cuban Missile Crisis. The commanders of these four submarines had been authorized to use their nuclear-tipped torpedoes if they were attacked, and aboard the B-59, Captain Valentin Stavitsky concluded that they were. And he gave orders to prepare their nuclear torpedo, saying, quote, We will die, but we will sink them all. We will not disgrace our Navy. Fortunately, cooler heads prevailed. Savitsky had the agreement of his other officers in launching the torpedo. But since the B-59 was the flagship of the flotilla bound for Cuba, it also carried the flotilla commander, Vasily Arkhipov. Since Arkhipov was aboard, they needed his approval as well, and Arkhipov refused, and he instead convinced Savitsky to surface. They got fresh air, they recharged their batteries, and, at the first opportunity, submerged and slipped away again, evading American detection before apparently returning to Soviet waters. Today, Arkhipov is generally regarded as a hero, as somebody whose clear thinking prevented what surely would have been a full-on nuclear war. But on his return to the Soviet Union, his decisions were heavily criticized. The general feeling was that he and the rest of them should have gone down with a ship. Arkhipov later died of cancer, probably a result of a previous incident aboard a submarine, which was a near meltdown on the K-19 during its maiden voyage that killed seven people who were aboard almost immediately and then caused delayed effects for many of the others who were been there. Basically, they averted a total meltdown situation, but it was at a high cost. The U.S. was completely unaware that they had been dropping signaling charges on a nuclear-armed submarine until much later. And the whole incident was little known until documents related to it were declassified in 1992. If you would like to know more, there is a PBS Secrets of the Dead episode about this whole incident that's called The Man Who Saved the World. And to wrap up the Cuban Missile Crisis... Eventually, the Soviet Union agreed to remove the missiles from Cuba in exchange for a pledge that the United States wouldn't invade the nation, something that the U.S. had already tried and failed to do during the Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961. And in another move that wasn't publicly known until decades later, the U.S. also removed its nuclear missiles from Turkey. I kind of imagine this as as being like, if you were if you were throwing rocks at a tree and not hitting it, and then you realize later that the tree had a big old hornet's nest inside, <laughs> like that's sort of what was going on with dropping signaling charges onto this nuclear armed submarine full of people who were overheated, exhausted, dehydrated, and not having enough oxygen. Yeah, but a hornet's nest that could kill a lot of people. Yeah, a, ho- a hornet's nest that would destroy the entire world. So with that cheery thought, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> Uh, take a word from a sponsor before we move on to our next story. Now we are going to move beyond the Cold War into a story that's right on the cusp of our typical window of history on the show. It t- uh, took place in 1983. And as was the case with the Soviet submarine B-59, this also happened during a period of heightened tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. Throughout the Cold War, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union were actively making plans for what they would do if the other struck first in a nuclear attack. 
And for a couple of years in the early 1980s, Yuri Andropov, General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, was particularly convinced that the U.S. was making definite plans for a nuclear attack that would devastate Soviet leadership. Under his command, the Soviet Union was preparing for a certainty, not an eventuality. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union had also made it clear that a nuclear strike by one would prompt an immediate and devastating response from the other. In 1983, a series of incidents had ratcheted up the general sense of nuclear paranoia. On March 8th, President Ronald Reagan had delivered a speech arguing against a proposed nuclear freeze in which he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. Later that month, he announced the missile defense system that came to be known as Star Wars. Both nations undertook maneuvers and drills purportedly for the sake of preparedness, uh, but often they were interpreted by the other as being anything from a threatening show of force to a real effort to secretly lay the groundwork for an upcoming World War III. And when our next incident took place, the latest and probably most alarming of these was the downing of Korean Air Flight 007. The commercial flight was en route from New York to Seoul with a stop in Anchorage to refuel. After leaving Anchorage for reasons that aren't entirely clear, the flight diverged from its planned course and wound up in Soviet airspace. The Soviet Union, apparently believing it was a U.S. spy plane, scrambled two fighter jets, which attacked the plane with air-to-air missiles. The flight crashed into the sea, killing all 269 people aboard, one of whom was U.S. Representative Larry McDonald of Georgia. The incident sparked international outrage and a slew of conspiracy theories, some of which still persist today. The Soviet Union did not help the matter by being incredibly secretive about the incident, at first not even admitting that it had happened and not revealing whether it had found the wreckage or flight data recorders. A lot of the details remained completely unknown to the rest of the world until after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and some of the details are still a mystery. Three weeks after the incident with Flight 007 on September 26th, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov of the Soviet Air Defense Forces was stationed in a bunker known as Serpukov-15, which was part of the Soviet Union's newly enabled early warning satellite defense network. At Serpukov-15, satellite intelligence was received and analyzed, and in the case of an attack, there was a telephone with a direct line to commanding officers. Petrov's job there was so secret that not even his wife knew where he worked or what he did. By this point, both the United States and the Soviet Union each had satellite systems that were meant to help keep watch for the launch of intercontinental ballistic missiles from the other. United States satellites basically looked down on the Earth from above, but on the Soviet side, the satellites looked at the planet on edge. They were looking for missiles after they had already been launched. They would sort of be silhouetted against the the background of space. In theory, this minimized the number of natural phenomena and other non-threatening human activities that could cause a false alarm. But on September 26th, just after midnight local time, a false alarm did indeed happen, most likely thanks to sunlight reflecting off of high-altitude clouds. The system detected the presence of, at first, one missile. But in moments, that number grew to five, all launched from the United States. 
The warning of the detected incoming missile strike played out within the Serpikov 15 bunker like something out of a movie. There were blaring alarms and warnings in huge red letters on the screens. If you've ever seen a nuclear disaster movie in which the launch happens and it's met with like giant wailing klaxons and the words launch in big red flashing letters on the screen and you've thought, man, that looks ridiculous. Apparently that's really what happened. (laughs) It looked exactly like that. Protocol was for Petrov to immediately contact his superior officers to report that the launch had been detected. But he had some doubts that the report was accurate. This system was brand new, and in his opinion, it had been rushed into use when it was still, in his words, raw. Five also seemed like an unusually low number of missiles for a preemptive nuclear strike. He would later say, quote, when people start a war, they don't start, they don't start it with only five missiles. You can do little damage with just five missiles. So instead of contacting his superior officers to say that a nuclear strike was incoming, he called to report a false alarm. Even as he did, though, he wasn't completely sure that he was right. It wasn't until the missiles in question failed to reach the Soviet Union that he knew for sure that his hunch had been correct. Yeah, he was like, I thought it was maybe (laughs) 50-50. And he also later theorized that if someone else had been on duty, it would not have been the same call. By his own account, though, after this was all over, he went home, he drank a whole lot of vodka, and he slept for more than 24 consecutive hours. As with the submarine B-59, the details of this incident only became public much later. At the time, Petrov himself got no recognition within the Soviet Union for what he had done and the crisis averted under his watch. However, after an investigation, he did get a reprimand for not keeping a detailed enough log about what had happened. His explanation was that he had a phone in one hand and the facility's intercom in the other, and he couldn't juggle both at once and also take notes. In the aftermath of all this, the computer program that was designed to filter out natural phenomena and other noise from the early warning system's results was rewritten to account for this combination of sun and high-altitude clouds. The world learned of Petrov's actions about 15 years later when his commanding officer wrote about it in his memoir. His wife learned of it when a reporter came to their home following the publication of that memoir. A documentary about this whole incident came out in 2014, which was called The Man Who Saved the World. That is not an error. It is the same name (laughs) as the one uh, about the submarine. And we're going to take another quick break before we talk through one more of these. The last of these incidents that we are going to talk about today is way more recent than we generally get into this on the show. We have kind of a rule of thumb window. You know, it's this is definitely newer than that. But as I was going through the surprisingly many events of this type, it stood out for reasons that are going to become clear. Uh, by this point, the Soviet Union had dissolved, so the nuclear superpowers at play were the United States and Russia. And we have a little less detail on this one than we did on the other two, in part because any United States documents pertaining to it are probably still classified. On January 25th, 1995, Russian radar operators near the coast spotted a fast-moving object that appeared to be a missile. 
It was over the Barents Sea, roughly between Russia's northern coast and the Arctic Ocean. And then as it moved, the object separated into multiple pieces. It was behaving like a Trident missile, and judging from where it originated, it could have been launched from a U.S. submarine. The radar technicians feared that this was an American nuclear warhead set to detonate high in the atmosphere and to put all of of Russia's early warning satellite system, which was still being maintained in spite of the end of the Cold War, out of commission. That system, though, had not detected any launches, but it was also primarily focused on missile sites in North America. There was apparently also some cloud cover. The satellite operators notified their commanding officers that a suspected launch was in the works. In the United States, Russia, and other nations that have nuclear weapons, a specially outfitted satchel known as the nuclear briefcase accompanies the head of state. The briefcase's actual contents are secret, and the U.S. version weighs about 45 pounds. Its purpose is to make sure the head of state has all the necessary documentation on hand, while also allowing them to receive information, make decisions, and, if necessary, order a nuclear strike. The U.S. has also noted that part of the briefcase's purpose is being able to identify that it really is the president making the call. Russia had a clear protocol in the event of a missile launch. First, signal the president's nuclear briefcase, at this point accompanying President Boris Yeltsin. Then, assess the situation, and within 10 minutes, make a decision on whether to retaliate. According to Russian defense protocols, incoming missiles didn't have to actually strike anything before the retaliatory strike was ordered. In spite of the discrepancy between what the radar operators and the early warning satellites were reporting, about five minutes into that 10-minute window, word went out to submarine commanders in the area to maintain a state of readiness and prepare for further instruction. Eight minutes into the 10-minute window, the mystery objects on the radar fell into the sea, and everyone, thankfully, stood down. And the culprit in this case was the Black Brant 12, a sounding rocket, which is a scientific rocket used to take measurements and conduct tests. A sounding rocket typically has a rocket and a payload designed to separate from it at a certain altitude. Often, once it's taken its measurements or conducted its experiment, the payload portion comes back to Earth with its descent slowed down by a parachute. That separation of the instruments and the payload from the rocket is what the radar detectors had interpreted as the separation of a Trident missile. It was really a Norwegian rocket that was being used to study the Northern Lights. <laughs> uh, and where it gets, yeah, where it gets a little uh, unnerving is that um, the Norwegian and American team that was responsible for this thing had notified multiple other countries, including Russia, of what was about to happen. But nobody had told these satellite operators who raised the alarm about it. And a- apparently nobody made the connection between this report of a uh, uh, launch from the coast and the launch of a scientific rocket that was already known to everyone. Like, nobody connected those two things together. However, the thing that made this so notable and made me want to include it in today's episode, in spite of its recency, is it's the only known time in world history that a head of state has actually activated their nuclear briefcase. I can't help but think how frustrating it would be for the science team to be like, we did everything right, and yet... (laughs) yet, We literally told you. (laughs) Inadvertently... 
we could have set off like a horrible global incident despite yeah. having like gone through the checklist and done everything we were supposed to. Uh, to our knowledge, there is no movie or TV show about this particular incident yet. But since this incident was about 10 minutes of a long and sometimes controversial political career for Boris Yeltsin, they will probably title it something besides the man who saved the world. Although you never know. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe that's just the title of all nearly near all incidents of, of, of just barely averting nuclear catastrophe. They will all be called the man who saved the world. That does seem to definitely be the pattern. Yeah. Do you have listener mail for us? Sure do. It's from Julie. Uh, and Julie has written to us since from a little bit ago. I was out of the office for a while on the vacation that prompted this episode. So I, I have some things in the inbox that are from older episodes. And this one is from Julie. And it is uh, following our episode on Jamaica's Maroon Wars. She says, Dear Holly and Tracy, my name's Julie. Like so many other fans of your podcast, I always look forward to Mondays and Wednesdays to listen to your latest episodes. I'm an Acadian, French-Canadian group, mainly from the Maritime Provinces of Canada, from New Brunswick, Canada, and currently live in Ottawa, the nation's capital. While I greatly appreciated learning a bit of Jamaican history during your Jamaica's Maroon Wars episode, I didn't expect to draw parallels with my own personal history. About 40 years prior to the Maroons' deportation to Halifax, Nova Scotia, the Acadians who were living in the area of what are now the provinces of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island faced their own deportation under the British rule. Starting in 1755, villages and crops were destroyed as families were separated and forced onto boats. Their destinations varied between New England ports, England, France, and even the Caribbean. You can imagine my shock at the irony of these circumstances being repeated as I was listening to the turn of events for the Maroons. And like the Maroons, the Acadian people's history is one of resistance and resilience. As some Acadians, my ancestors included, uh, were able to hide from the deportation with the help of the Mi'kmaq allies, the local indigenous population. In addition, several years following the deportation, many Acadians made the long trek back to Acadia to resettle. Some groups decided to start a new life in the colony of Louisiana, where they came, where they became known as the Cajuns. Acadians today are very proud of our legacy, culture, and French language. I'm more than happy to share more information if you'd like to explore Acadian history as a potential episode topic. Keep up the excellent work as we have so much to learn from our different histories as well as the connections where we least expect them. Love from your Canadian neighbor, Julie. Thank you so much, Julie. Uh, I wanted to read this for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, it was not quite within my brain um, that the deportation of Maroons to Halifax was in such relatively close proximity to the expulsion of the Acadians. Uh, but... We have had a number of folks ask for an episode about the expulsion of the Acadians, and it is on the list. I just want to note that it's on the list. <laughs> it's been on the list. Pretty much from for, day one of us coming on, for sure. Yes. Four years on the list. It's a, it's one of the, similarly to the executive order 9066 episode that we did pretty recently. It is such a big topic. Its size and scope <laughs> have meant that it's been on a list for a long time, and I'm I'm not sure when it's going to make up to the top of the list, because uh, it is a a big one to get into. Uh, but it is on the list for the folks who have asked. 
Um, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And we're also uh, under the name Missed in History all over social media. So that's Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, Instagram, all that stuff for Missed in History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, you can learn so much about how nuclear weapons work at HowStuffWorks. There's a lot of it. Uh, you can come to our, our website, which is missinhistory.com. You will find show notes uh, about all of the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together. You will find an archive of every episode ever. The whole thing is searchable. So about 99% of the time, uh, if there's a particular subject you want to see if we've covered, it will come up in search. The other 1% of the time, we are working on tagging or or tweaking the title or something to make it more easily searchable. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.